Please be sure to have Exodus 22 and 23 open there before you. Let's pray. Father God, we've just been singing of how Jesus reveals your righteousness to us. We thank you for your word, your word spoken and written, and your word made flesh in Jesus. Lord, help us to be people who pay attention to your word in all its fullness. And help us this evening as we come to this rather obscure part of your word. Help us to see more of who you are uh, as we look at your word together. Amen. I want to begin by asking you to use your imaginations to, to help us enter into to this evening. I want you to imagine that we're living in 3012, 3012, so about a thousand years into the future from now. And uh, I want you to think of us as a, like a conference of historians. So we're trying to work out about a, a period in ancient history. We're trying to build up a picture of what life was like in the UK in 2012. We've just discovered the statute book of the period, uh, the record of the laws that were used at that time to govern the people. And by carefully looking at the laws, we begin to get a, a, a sense of what life was like in that place at that time. So we'd see, for example, that there was a minimum wage. It had been recently introduced. Whatever kind of a society that was back then, they seemed to, to try to protect employees from powerful and unscrupulous employers. We had noticed as well that there was a, a change in the law around about that time, the late 20th century, the early 21st, that lifted or reduced previous bans on Sunday trading. So a community that used to think that life was better when they, they had limits on how much time they spent shopping seemed to be changing its mind about that and saying, actually, it's fine or, or good to shop almost all the time. And looking at the law in 2012, we discover a rise in legislation regarding health and safety. We'd see a, a gradual redefinition of marriage and increasing provision for different kinds of partnerships. We'd see the, the increase of provision for recognizing the rights of people uh, with disabilities to have access to public buildings and so on. These laws, if we looked at them and if we looked enough of, at enough of them, would give us a pretty good sense of what life was like way back then in 2012. It'd give us an insight into the mind of the lawgivers, the lawmakers, what were they thinking, and it would also help us to understand what life was like for the people who lived under those laws. Okay, so let's come back to the present and use that same exercise, that same looking back at a set of laws from a previous time in a different culture. As we've read from Exodus together this evening, we've reached a section that records for us some of the laws 
that, that God had given to govern his people Israel at the time of their constitution, just after they'd come out of Egypt. Let's, let's do exactly the same exercise. What do these laws tell us about that society? And more particularly, what do they tell us about the mind of the lawmaker or the lawgiver? That's an important question for the Israelites because they believed that their lawmaker and their lawgiver was none other than God himself. And, and Christians, those who, who follow in the spiritual heritage of the Jews, share that sense that the biblical law of Exodus is God's law. So as we come to it this evening, we ask a question, what does this law recorded in Exodus teach us about our God? And we'll go on to ask a second question too. What kind of a life is this law-giving God calling us to live? So what does the law tell us about God? Well, if you ask that question to a devout Jew of the time or hundreds of years later at Jesus' time or even of today, they would tell you that the law is good and that shows us that God is good. They would tell you that the law is a beautiful thing, a beautiful gift from a loving God to confer blessings on his people. Flick it over with me for a moment to Psalm 119. I'll give you a page number if that helps. Psalm 119 begins on page 617. If you know this psalm at all, it's the longest of the psalms. It's dead long, and it's a big, long celebration of, of God's law. Look at these opening verses. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their hearts. Guys, that biblical word blessed just means happy. These are the happy people. These are the people who are living the good life, the ones who keep God's law. Verse 24 the psalmist declares his own hand. He says to the Lord, your statutes are my delight. They're my counselors. Verse 45, he talks about finding liberation in the law. I walk about in freedom, for I've sought out your precepts. Verses 47 to 48, he's bursting with love for the law. It's, he says, I delight in your commands because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love. Verse 72, he makes it clear that he values the law more than anything else. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Verse 97, I think, just about caps it all. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. What do you make of that? Does it seem weird? I mean, it's okay to talk about loving God, but to say that we love his law doesn't sound quite right, does it? It doesn't sound like the honest, natural, spontaneous response of any sane person. We don't tend to love laws. But that's exactly what this is. 
here and, and many other places in Scripture, we see that the people learned to love God's law. That was the spontaneous response of their hearts. This psalmist, like many others in Israel and many millions of people since, had grown to love God's law. How is that possible? It seems to me that these folks were getting a bit of a glimpse of just what a wonderful life God's law makes possible for us. For them, living among pagan nations with very dubious morals and, and human rights records, God's law was a wonderful and a beautiful thing to them. When you live in a world where oppression and slavery are rife, you're just delighted to see a God who won't stand for that kind of oppression. When you live in a violent world where the smallest indiscretion can be met with the most brutal, violent retaliation and revenge, then you grow to love a God whose law puts limits on that kind of vengeance. If the nations around you are practicing infanticide, child sacrifice, (coughs) then you're delighted to see a law where the God says, no, don't sacrifice your children to me. Dedicate your firstborn sons. If we lived in that kind of a climate, then maybe too we'd be saying with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. I wonder whether we realize just how much we are living the life that the psalmist is that we too live in a community that's underpinned by the, the law of God revealed to us in Scripture. Modern-day Britain, so much of our country's law is based on and influenced by the Judeo-Christian worldview derived from, from the Bible and the <laughs> biblical law. And I doubt that most of us here have ever thought about that very much, what the benefits of, of that really are. Take, for example, the story that hit the news this week. So it turns out that vulnerable men from Britain and Ireland have been brought over to Europe to work in almost slave-like conditions. Uh, they're being trafficked uh, and, and ending up there working for minimal pay, awful conditions, very long hours. It's the kind of story that outrages us when we hear it. Well, if we'd grown up in some other cultures, if we didn't have the blessings of being underpinned in our culture by the values of Scripture, then that kind of activity, we wouldn't bat an eyelid at it. It would be the most natural thing in the world that vulnerable people are taken advantage of and that the ruthless and the strong get to have it their own way. Or take the the trafficking of women into Belfast for a a growing sex trade. We find that abhorrent. But in many other cultures, you wouldn't really have a big issue with it. Women are weak. They're ripe for exploitation. Men are entitled to have what they want, whatever the cost to the women they exploit. That's a common enough view in cultures that are not underpinned by the the worldview of Scripture. 
I wonder, have we started to get it yet? Have we come to see God's law as a beautiful thing? That this really is God's invitation to the best kind of life that there possibly is? Or do we still imagine that, that going with God, that living according to His law, will be some sort of second best? Do we still think that we'd love to be able to indulge in all these activities that Scripture prohibits? Do we carry some sort of a huge frustration that we're stuck with the law of God? I I guess for a lot of us, there's still an element of that in our lives. We, We don't believe that God's law is good. There's a wonderful prayer tucked away there in Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things of your law. Lord, help us to see it, to get it, to understand just how much you're for us, just how much you long to bless us, just how much the life that you call us to is the good life. Help us to see that you are a good God and to see that in your good law. So the first thing that we learn as we look at the law of God is that God is good. A second thing that the law teaches us about God is that God cares about all of life. And that comes through very clearly in the chapter and a half that we're looking at this evening. When you read Exodus 22... 18 through to 23, 19, and we read the first part of that, it can seem pretty frustrating, can't it? I mean, I'm just imagining the kind of response I would have got from a university professor if I had handed that in as a paper. Um, The sense of coherent thought or, or logical flow seems pretty elusive. The NIV guys try their best to, to, to put headings, but the headings don't really work. You don't have to read too far to see that there's stuff under, one of the, under the headings that shouldn't be under that heading. It just doesn't work. They'd need to have loads of different headings to make the whole thing work. So let me suggest a pattern that might help us to get a better feel for this passage and also to show us a little bit the big picture of God's law. This chapter seems to me to be made up of a bunch of laws that have to do with worship on the one hand and a bunch of laws that have to do with social relationships on the other. And the writer seems to transition from one theme to the other and then back and then back. So there's a a slide coming up on the screen here, I, I hope. Brilliant. Thank you, Graham. And here's, uh, I think, a better framework than the NIV's uh, little titles. So let's fly through this and I'll show you what I mean. Verses 18 to 20, there's some very punitive sanctions there in Israel against any person who would lead people away from worship of the living God, whether it's a sorceress or whether it's someone offering sacrifices to another God or even someone having sexual relations with an animal. You might wonder what that's doing in there. That's likely to be there as a sanction against bestiality because this was commonly associated with with pagan worship. It's a, a practice that would be leading people away from worship of the living God. 
You notice then in verses 21 to 28 that the focus switches to social responsibility. The Israelites were to look after the vulnerable in their community, be they ethnic minorities, widows, or orphans. They're not to exploit the poor by charging interest on any money they lend. There's no loan sharks allowed in Israel. In verses 29 to 31, the focus goes back to worship. Don't hold back your offerings. Give to God your firstborn cattle and sheep. Dedicate your firstborn son. And the prohibition of eating meat torn by wild beasts, again, that's probably something to set the people apart from the pagans, their pagan neighbors. In verses 1 to 9 of chapter 23, the focus swings back to people's social responsibility. There's quite a bit there about how you conduct your legal affairs, uh, how you keep integrity in the court. Do you prohibit false witness? You prohibit favoritism against a poor person. The thing that struck me in that section was the prohibition against favoritism toward a poor person. Very interesting. Such is the commitment to, to integrity in process that simply a person isn't to be favored simply on the grounds of being poor. The court must have integrity at all times. And there's a, a section there, or in verse 4 of chapter 23, there's a, a part there that I think anticipates Jesus' call to love our enemies. It says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him out with it. That's pretty different stuff. Nowhere in our laws you can find any stuff like that about looking out for your enemies. Finally, in verses 10 to 19, the focus is back on worship matters. The people are into, to enjoy a Sabbath rest, not just the Israelites, but their servants and any immigrants among them and even their animals. Even the land is supposed to get a, a rest and, and is to remain unharvested so that the poor and wild animals can have their fill. And the whole thing, this brings to an end, a section here in Exodus of, of law, the whole thing ends with a call to celebration. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. Remember that I rescued you from Israel. Celebrate the feast of the harvest with the first of the, the crops that you bring in. And once the harvest is all in, have another party, just because it's all in. What a, a wonderful God who makes it his business to make sure, who, who gives us laws to say, make sure you get a rest and make sure you party plenty. That's what we were saying a moment ago. The law demonstrates the goodness of God. A couple of things about this twofold emphasis of the law at this point. The worship provisions made it clear that Israel the people were to love God. And the provisions about social responsibility makes it clear that it's equally important to love other people. Love God and love other people. Haven't we heard that before somewhere? Matthew 22, 
the gospel writer tells us of the occasion when an expert in the law tested Jesus with a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. And Jesus just quotes from the law. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. He says, this is the first and the greatest command. And then he quotes Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says that all the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. One benefit of studying this part of Exodus is to to remember the place of the law in the life of a, a follower of Jesus. Just in case we're in any doubt about the value of the law, we've got to recognize how Jesus chose to endorse it and to reinforce it in his teaching. You'll remember that Jesus said, I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill it. And how did Jesus fulfill the law? I think that's quite a complex question. We could go on and say quite a lot. But just very quickly, he kept the law, every part of it. Jesus took on himself the punishment that our failure to keep the law generated, and he offers us forgiveness. And finally, he helps us fulfill the law as he gives us his spirit, his own law-keeping presence to indwell us, to help us to love God and love our neighbors. Just one other thing that this dual nature of the law teaches us about God. It teaches us in a very clear way and I I want you to take this home with you tonight and not forget it. It teaches us in a very clear way that there is no sacred secular divide. We noticed earlier how some of these laws seem to be about worshiping God and others about much more everyday affairs, caring for our servants and our animals and even our fields. And we'd be inclined, if it was up to us, if we were re-editing this part of Exodus, we'd split these laws up, we'd sort it out, and would categorize them. Chapter 22 would put all the ones relating to worship together, and we'd say that these have to do with God, and they're sacred. And then we'd take all the other laws to do with everyday life, and would say these aren't really so much to do with God, not really so much of interest to Him, and we'd call them secular. And we'd have a sacred and a secular divide because this dominates how we think. We imagine that God's only interested in some stuff, in Sundays and in church and in Bible reading and in mission teams. And we imagine that what we do in our work and with our time and our money and in our families and in our homes doesn't really interest God so much. That's really our own business. Folks, the law of Exodus doesn't allow any of that. It just takes the two different kinds of things 
the worship and loving God laws and the everyday loving our neighbor laws, and it throws them all in together and says they're all important to God. It weaves together here the provisions about formal worship and the provisions about everyday life because all of life is worship. There's nothing for the Christian, for the believer that isn't worship. There is no sacred-secular divide because there's no such thing as secular. Everything under God is a beautiful thing ready to be redeemed and to be holy. We've been thinking about the question, what is this law recorded here in Exodus teach us about God? It shows us that God's good. We've been asking what kind of a life does this law-giving God call us to live. We've seen that he wants us to live a life characterized by love, love for him, love for each other. And it's to spread through the whole of our lives. There are no compartments. There are no divisions. It's all things. And tucked away in the middle of our passage is a little verse that tells us clearly what kind of a life God wants us to live. 22 Chapter 22, verse 31. God says, you are to be my holy people. God's given us the law to show us how we're to live so that we can be different from the rest of the world and show them how wonderful he is. We were thinking about that this morning Just as God had called Israel to be his holy people and to be a light to the nations, God called the the believers in Corinth to be an entirely new kind of community in that pagan city. They were to reflect his character. They were to, to show Corinth what he is like. And folks, that's it. That's the story of the Bible that God in his grace and mercy calls us to be a people for him. To live wherever we are and to show the world what he is like. I'll close with a wee story that someone told me. I don't know if it's true, but that's the preacher's motto. Never let the truth get in the way of one of these stories. Chris Wright You've maybe heard of Chris Wright. He's a a Northern Irish man originally. He is an Old Testament scholar and theologian, and he's become a a great blessing to the the worldwide church. When the the Lausanne movement were looking for a theologian to to help them write up the Cape Town commitment, which we studied for the, the six weeks before Christmas, they gave Chris Wright the job of heading up that task. Uh, a, a wonderful blessing to the worldwide church. I've been told that Chris Wright was speaking at the Bangor Convention and he was introducing the closing hymn, uh, Shine, Jesus, Shine, Fill This Land with the Father's Glory. And when he was just introducing that song, he, he found himself saying, 
that there's a problem with that song. He had a sense that whenever we raised our voices to sing, shine, Jesus, shine, to, to Jesus, when we raise our voices to sing that to him in heaven, he would simply answer back, do it yourselves. Do it yourselves. I've left you on earth to be vehicles for my presence and to shine. Don't ask me to shine. You're it. Now go and do it. Let's pray. Father God, when we read these laws and we see your heart to gather a people around you who will love you and love each other and who will then take that, that beautiful way of life and live it out before the world. Lord, it seems so simple. And yet, Lord, we know how much this faithful, holy living can elude us. Father God, would you win our hearts? Would you show us how beautiful you are? Would you show us what a dead-end, life-shrinking experience all our idolatry is? And would you make us a holy people for you? Would you do that for individual ones of us here in this congregation? Lord, we pray you do it for us corporately too. That we would be holy, that would be different in all the ways that your loving presence makes people different. Father God, we thank you that you're a good God and you invite us into a good life. Give us the courage to go further and deeper with you now. Amen.